Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Over the last decade, competitive gaming has exploded in popularity. Young people have helped grow esports into a billion-dollar industry, and it's viewed by hundreds of millions each year. But what does this world look like, and what does its growth mean for the future of sport in America? This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later in the episode, we talk with a climate activist on how video game players and companies are impacting our environment and what can we do about it. But first, across the nation, universities are responding to the demand for gaming from students. The University of New Haven in Connecticut recently created an academic esports program and a varsity esports team. Jason Chung is assistant professor and executive director of esports business programs at the University of New Haven. Corey Parks is the director of esports and head coach of the University of New Haven's esports team. He's also a former pro esports player. Jason, Corey, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Yeah, happy to be here. Jason, I want to start with you because before we get into the details of New Haven esports, I want to clarify for our listeners what esports actually looks like. I think that for many people, especially older listeners, they may assume this is about a bunch of kids in their basement playing Xbox or playing other video games. But this is a much bigger endeavor. So talk to us. What are some of the big esports leagues and what is esports all about? Well, esports at its core is competitive video gaming, right? And uh, people might think that people are in basement uh, playing this kind of stuff. And of course they are. But on the professional scale, uh, this is a full-blown activity. This is a full-blown league. This is a full-blown entertainment industry segment. And so, as Corey will tell you, there are uh, professional athletes that are assigned to teams. Uh, They will be competing against each other in major invitationals and uh, major tournaments uh, throughout the world. Um, You know, sometimes they're organized in league structures, sometimes in tournament structures. But at the end of the day, uh, it's a a multi-billion dollar business uh, and uh, with viewership with over half a billion people across the world. How old is this as an endeavor, esports? And what makes this different from how most people think about the game and sports? Yeah, you know, esports has been around, you know, arguably for like, I want to say 15 years, arguably 20, I guess. But, you know, before the more recent blow up of esports, it was the, a single player named Fatality for the most part, who was really well known across multiple games, across multiple years in the StarCraft game to play. I mean, the timeline is not important, but... Uh, it's been around for years, but kind of not in the spotlight, right? And then we kind of established that there's like intangibles connected to everything and, you know, people are actually watching this. So we had that huge rise in the last like four or five years as to what we can do with this because it's not going away. I think you know, there's, there's a lot of stigmas that come with esports, right? Um, I always just try to point out why it's so important not to go down that that avenue. I, I think there's two there's two things to gaming in general around esports. One is you're playing video games for a form of escapism with friends and socializing, which is fine and it's been around for, will be around for years and has been. Esports is more dedicated towards the individual who likes to problem solve and critical think 
and then excel at it, right? And you want to be able to compete in a world where you might not, if you're not six five, you can still compete at a very high level, right? So there's no barriers of entry other than do you have a brain, right? That's full stop. Um, other than you know, we can talk. We talk about the technical side where it's you know how much is cost to get a good end computer technology obviously does have a barrier of entry but when it comes to just the individual and what we're really focusing on it's do you like critical thinking do you like beating someone you know in a in a mental game um and do, can you work within a team environment to excel right so that's why esports is blown up in my opinion um anybody can kind of pick up a game and kind of do that naturally uh then you have me or someone else who kind of shows them You've been doing this for a long time. Take it somewhere to the next level if you want to, right? One of the things to also keep in mind is that the growth of esports uh, generally has ha happened across the world at uh, uneven rates. One of the things that always confuses people is about esports is that actually esports is not like football where it's one recognizable version of a game. There are multiple titles owned by different publishers. So obviously, uh, you know, uh, when you're talking about an esports athlete, they could be playing wildly different titles, right? Everything from uh, a first person shooter like uh, like uh, CSGO uh, all the way to, you know, uh, you know, basically simulation football in Madden, right? So, you know, the definitions are, are different. And also in terms of the longevity of esports, you know, in North America, I'd like to think we're still in toddlerhood. Uh, you know, it's been around for a few years and it's continuing to grow. But uh, in, in South Korea, for instance, it's a longstanding pursuit. Uh, you know, one of the things that they had over there were uh, PC bongs or PC rooms where people can play video games against each other. Uh, originally, it was intended to pro provide productivity services, but teenagers prefer playing video games instead. And that's been around since the 90s. And in fact, esports basically was birthed there, right? Uh, because they some of the people on the network side decided this would actually make a good spectator sport. And teenagers seem to really love it. So they've been putting it on TV since uh, and, and streaming it online since the late 1990s. So it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's over a good uh, 25 years or 20 to 25 years now. I want to pick up on something that both of you mentioned, and that is how we view and conceptualize sports here in the U.S. as opposed to how other parts of the world. So in many ways, sport is and sporting in the United States has become this sort of marker of physical ability or of masculinity. And it is this idea that you need to physically conquer something. But what both of you have mentioned has been about the mental skill, the intellectual agility that is required to not just participate, but to really be able to maneuver all of these different things, that there are different games, there are different levels of interaction. You see e-gaming as a way to sort of push back against that narrow notion of what constitutes sport. You know, I'm thinking about the Olympics. And when skateboarding was introduced, people said, I don't know if that's sports. That's not really athleticism. Do you see gaming as a way of challenging some of those notions? At first, I think when it when esports kind of started to get a little bit of a bubble and people were playing more often, there was a little bit of a pushback mentality. I've completely gone away from that. You can call esports whatever you want, a sport, not a sport. I don't care. I'm so not focused on that narrative anymore that it's basically, I just focus on what my students within this scenario or my teams that I'm playing on are doing, right? Like let, let the noise do, the, do, what, do its thing. At the end of the day, they can, sports will succeed for the rest of our lives. Like there's no, no doubt in my mind. Are numbers slowly trickling away into esports? Yes, you can go look at the data, right? More kids are playing games relative to going and playing basketball when they're in fifth grade. It's just fact. So um, that being said, I just focus on us. 
right? I think I, I've had that mentality with every single thing I've ever done when it comes to esports is the more you focus on you and your circle of team or people you're trying to influence, I just ignore the noise at this point. Absolutely. And one of the other things to keep in mind, going back to your original question is, is, uh, is it a leveler? Is it, is it something that allows people from, you know, all over different uh, abilities and all that to, to compete against each other? Absolutely it is, right? Uh, in fact, one of the things that I'm really uh, glad to see is that um, most of the video game, uh, you know, console makers as well as PC makers are starting to really uh, hone in on uh, accessibility uh, gear uh, as well so that people from, uh, you know, of different physical uh, abilities can play. Um, and I think all of that is incredibly positive. Will that have a, you know, will that help acceptance or bring people over? Again, as Corey said, I think that's a little bit secondary. Um, you know, people always ask me whether esports is a sport and I say, well, what's a sport? <laughs> and then they have a hard time uh, describing what that is because ultimately sport is a way to describe uh, the industry, right? And the people put up different sort of uh, definitions around it. And, you know, also as a sport management professor, of course, I have to do that a little bit. But at the end of the day, it's an entertainment industry. And as long as there are viewers, as long as there's revenue, and as long as there are competitors, you have something of value. And uh, it's all the entertainment industry at the end of the day. Jason, let's talk about that barrier to entry and how we build around the possibilities of esports and of gaming. You are now leading an esports program, bachelor's and master's programs at the University of New Haven. Share with us what those programs look like and what was the motivation behind creating this at the University of New Haven? We have a few different academic programs. So, you know, some of them are a little bit more business oriented. Some of them are a little bit more esports and gaming general focused so that students can make their uh, make their own focus uh, in, uh, in, in sort of that industry. And the reason why we did that is because at the end of the day, you know, competitors and high level play has been around. But, you know, the, uh, the support structure is still being figured out. Right. So as Corey will tell you, even in the collegiate space. Where do you compete? Who do you compete with? Uh, who, who controls the leagues? What's the infrastructure like? All that is being decided on literally a minute by minute basis, right? Every time we check, uh, it's, it's a little bit different. Uh, and the whole, uh, it's like the NCAA turning itself around every, every, uh, every couple of weeks, right? Um, you know, so we need students and we, and frankly, the industry need work, uh, needs workers that can actually navigate that. Uh, you know, every from, everything from project management to product development uh, to, to, you know, coding to even just writing uh, the games themselves. Uh, you know, all of the, these are skills that are complementary but are required in the industry. And one of the ways, and one of the central frustrations of the industry is that they've been trying to find good workers for a long time and they can find people that are passionate about the industry and they can find people that are, you know, competent in other fields and come in and bring that knowledge. But, you know, honestly, at the end of the day, we're talking esports is an amalgamation of a few different industries, right? It's a, it's a union between sport and video games and technology and having workers that can navigate all of that is very, very tricky. And in fact, uh, you know, they're so they've been burned so many times with with workers that they're approaching me. They're they're talking to me about, hey, uh, you know, how are your master students? Can they actually uh, can they actually, you know, help us with with some with some programs? And they're getting interviews and they're doing internships uh, at the you know top places for that because there's so there's of course there's a lot of supply of workers but qualified workers not as much Corey I want to connect something that you said earlier to Jason just framing out for us these degree programs because there will be critics who will say 
why do we need a degree or why should we have this at the college level? But what you've both mentioned is the way that it challenges people to think critically and analytically to rely on themselves, but also participate in a team. And, you know, again, as someone in higher education, I know people want to know what is the return on that investment. So even as you focus, Corey, on the people who are part of this community and really supporting your your players and those who are in the sport, how do you respond to that question about the necessity of really meeting the needs and interests of young people so that we're able to create something bigger that will endure? Yeah, you know, I, the reason why I moved to University of New Haven was their strong vision on connecting the two, right? And Jason and I, we've talked about this in, in length. It's an ecosystem, right? To where without the growth of the academics and education side, like, I don't think esports on the competitive side will be plateauing anytime soon, but why not speed that growth up, right? And that's a combination of having really, you know, people that are studying this space to, to bolster and lift up the teams, right? Because now we're talking about getting into psychology, social media management, the whole nine yards, right? End of the day, you always chalk it up to, are there people watching esports? Yes. So it's like with that there, you know, there's gonna be a money inflow at some point. Well, if not some point now, right? And continue to grow. Um, so I always just talk to people and tell them, you know, that want to get part of the academic, but also be part of the varsity team is, hey, look, just start competing, right? Like, because if you get an inside look or a feel for what some what you're doing day to day with these athletes, like, or whatever you want to call them, players, students, whatever it is, you're going to have a really good idea of what all the companies and the orgs right now want, right? And so we can, we can make that bridge. We can um, help push them over to the, the academic and vice versa so that you have a little bit of combination of both and experience because the big players in the space right now, they want both. They really do. And they, without having that experience on the varsity side, you're going to lack. And without having the education to back it up, you're going to lack as well, right? Unless you are the 1% of the 1% that are top competitors right now. And that gap is like, it's going like this, right? It's going bigger and bigger day by day. So you really have to be able to, you know, hedge your bets. Um, and if you want to be in a space that so like this, that's supporting education and competition, you want to be part of both, right? So. And there are also a couple of major trends as well, right? I mean, first of all, you're seeing this uh, this growth, of, and uh, you know it's exciting, and people want professional ma- management. But you're, this growth is also on the back of you know obviously some millennials, but also Gen Z as well. And the one thing that we know uh, in terms of the marketing aspect of it is that that segment of the population craves authenticity. So somebody coming in and not being authentic, not really caring, uh, not understanding the space, they'll tolerate some of it, but not really for a long time. Right. Uh, so, you know, you know, importing people like I'm, I'm sure, you know, there are people at, say, Target or Walmart that might understand spacing and the space and the distribution and merchandising and all that kind of stuff. But if they don't understand the space or don't adapt to it quickly, they're going to have problems. So the industry is actually coming to the point where, well, where is that organic supply of next generation of workers coming from? And so they're looking to programs like ours to really help fill that space. When we return, we continue our conversation with Jason Chung and Corey Parks from the University of New Haven. They'll talk about how the esports industry is responding to questions about representation and accountability. And later, what does the growth of the gaming market mean for our environment? This is Disrupted. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later in the show, a climate activist talks about how gamers can lessen their impact on the natural world. But now we continue our conversation with the leaders of the esports programs at the University of New Haven. Jason Chung is assistant professor and executive director of esport business programs. Corey Parks is director of esports and head coach of the varsity esports team. He's also a former pro esports player. The gaming community has seen its share of scandals and allegations involving sexism, harassment, bullying, and abuse that often push women and girls away from the sport. And although the number of women involved in the industry has grown over the last decade, the esports industry continues to struggle to attract and keep them in the sport. I asked Jason how the university is working to make its programming more accessible to all students. So the first thing I can say is that, you know, uh, let, you know, just to be completely transparent here, does the gaming industry as a whole have a, uh, you know, a male dominance and, uh, and, and is that a problem? Yeah, absolutely. That's something that uh, I think everyone is dealing with. In fact, the whole industry is dealing with right now because it's not only a moral issue now, it's also a business issue, right? It's, you know, if you've been seeing all the things that have been happening at Activision Blizzard or other places, uh, you're seeing a lot of uh, pushback against, you know, what, quite frankly, a lot of people called frat boy culture. And, um, you know, that's affecting not only the people and the culture within the company, but also the, the its perception, the perception of that company in the broader gaming space and broader society as well. So that's something that we at the collegiate space are obviously trying to deal with. And in fact, one of the things in the master's program that I can point to is that we brought on Dell, uh, Dell Technologies as a partner uh, to teach our uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion course. And in fact, that was done with a business focus, right? Because at the end of the day, of course, we want to talk about it morally and say we've got to do better. But that connected with the business side is really what gets change. And so, you know, obviously, you know, we want to get to parity. We want to have as much representation as possible. All of that we recognize is a process as well, right? Because these kinds of things have been going on for so long and it's become entrenched to a certain degree, you know, overcoming that is not, you know, an overnight thing. It's not a, a snap. You have to keep working at it. And quite frankly, we'll do that on the academic side. I know we're doing that on the varsity side and we're trying to recruit from as wide as possible, both students and players. Um, and we're also working with the industry to try to attack that problem and make it better, right? And give people rationale. There's a lot of times when you bring in representation and this has happened to me as before uh, being Asian when people say, well, this is buzzword, right? You know, uh, why don't we just have the most qualified worker? Well, you know, and I always point out to, 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 to senior executives and things like that and, and people that you don't know what you're missing if you don't have that in the room, right? So, you know, these are the kinds of things that we're trying to attack from a business level. And I think there's a growing recognition of that, not just in gaming, obviously, but in broader society as well, that, hey, we've been missing a big chunk of uh, uh, not only, uh, you know, qualified workers and people that can contribute to our organization, but also fans, consumers, uh, people we can engage with. So there's been a lot of movement and, you know, we'd like to think we're at the forefront of that. Right. And I, I'll piggyback off that because I'm really passionate about this one, right? Because if we were making an analogy, I would think of like, if you're going to war, right? Uh, Jason's taking care of all that in the war room where I'm on the front line, right? Because you have this infinite amount of, well, feels like infinite amount of individuals who are online, not filtered and don't really understand. And their parents probably have a thousand stories about each one of them, about what they're saying to their friends over a microphone, right? And this is the real problem is you have a combination of a toxic mentality that kind of just like is rampant right now, along with the fact that, you know, like 
I think the gaming industry itself is cut down the middle 50-50 for females and males. Like that's how they like to chop it up and the metrics are there on the casual side of gaming, right? On the competitive side, completely different. I would say 90% to 10%. I've thought about this for a long time and it really falls onto one thing. And it's, you have to get people involved into what we're talking about at a younger age correctly, right? I always talk about the stepping stones and the stepping, like you can't have, there's no esports camp at grade five or six or four to really establish and solidify some of these great concepts we have, which is be inclusive and, you know, work within a team and don't trash talk people have good sportsmanship. And this isn't a form of toxic escapism. This is, if you want to get better at something, you know, you have to put in the time and be kind to people. And all those things are, you know, wrapped around all the things we're talking about right here. And it just, the number one thing is get people into a space with guidance quicker rather than later, and you'll see a huge growth and a community shine. Um, but we're not there right now because for, for the last 10 years, other than, I mean, the recent five has been great, but the 10, the 15 before that, gamers have been, you know, by themselves, isolated with no one watching them, just doing what they loved, but there's always going to be bad actors in any space. Yeah, I think the main word is accountability. Um, you know, uh, the, the thing about gaming, uh, you know, as Corey mentioned, in terms of history, history, it's been very unaccountable. You're you're anonymous. <laughs> you're talking and uh, you're saying all kinds of crazy things into, you know, and until recently, a lot of these things weren't even as weren't even uh, monitored quite as well, you know, because the companies basically said, hey, we don't want to start regulating this because if we start regulating it, uh, we're going to be responsible. So, you know, some of that is changing now, uh, but the key is also accountability up and down the chain. So this, uh, now that more students are, are becoming part of high school leagues and collegiate leagues and, and pro organizations, you know, some of the things that they, everything that they say uh, in any forum will also be, they'll be accountable for that. And I think that will help the culture. Um, but it, it's also, again, a process, right? Uh, and uh, really, I also have to point out that a lot of the time when we're talking about problem, problematic people, um, they're, they're a percentage, but they're a very vocal minor percentage of it, right? Uh, they're the ones that will show up and say all kinds of crazy stuff just to get just to rile you up because, frankly, they don't have any anything else going on with them, right? Uh, so uh, you know that's what that's the way we have to you know I think think of it. And is it time to weed that out? Absolutely. I think it's what makes gaming as a community such an important and powerful opportunity to see what's possible. When you combine authenticity with recognition and accountability, what is the creativity, the innovation, the possibility that comes out of those spaces so that it's not about saying, you know, listen, this doesn't exist, but recognizing it does exist and here is the possibility. One of the other possibilities that I think about in this space is streaming and how the emphasis on streaming that we're seeing with you know major motion pictures and now in gaming could also change some of these dynamics. How important is video game streaming and sort of online gaming more broadly? How important is that to the work that you're both doing in the classroom, but also in competitive gaming with teams? It's critical. I mean, at the end of the, at the, end of the day, uh, streaming and and you know broadcasting yourself uh, and being you know and may and connecting with an audience worldwide um, 
that's that's actually the lifeblood of of promoting everything. Uh, there's a lot of personality uh, in the in the space, and quite frankly, that's the thing that people are glomming onto. Uh, and one of the things I like to point out is that, as, as as Corey knows as well, you know, professional teams and organizations, a lot of them are not making. Uh, While well, they may have huge revenues, but profitability is always a concern. Uh, and in fact, it's something that they lose on a lot of the time. They just grow the asset. Um, whereas, you know, if you're a streamer. You're, that's that's the profitable side of the industry right now, right? And uh, you know a lot of uh, and and why is that? It's because advertisers and sponsors are realizing that because in that because new consumers want uh, that sort of authenticity and crave that authenticity, they they realize that hey, uh, associating ourselves with these people is good for our bottom line. So how much stuff can we give them? How much money can we give them without you know it dealing uh, without making them look like a corporate show, right? And so there's that constant, you know, communication going on. But yes, yeah, streamers are absolutely critical to growing everything uh, because they're driving a lot of the viewership and the money. And how does that relate to esports? Well, you know, some esports athletes have followings as well. Uh, obviously, um, you know, culturally, it's very different about, you know, uh, around the world who people will watch in South Korea, for instance, uh, you could have zero personality, but as long as you're really, really good, <laughs> people will follow you. Whereas in North America, it's a little bit more personality focused. But again, these are marketing trends and things that are that are that are being figured out actively as we speak and um, honestly I think they're 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 a pretty big lifeblood of everything we're doing everything from the casual gaming side but also the esports side as well yeah and I think it's I think it's really important because you just talked about accountability right and if I know one thing about people that compete and play and are in the space of esports is they're passionate unfiltered and you know they're gonna make mistakes and you know I admire anybody you can be on twitch day in day out and be judged critiqued nonstop. Um, it's a very hard thing to do. So they deserve all the credit for you know, everything that comes to them. That being said, they have to be held accountable, right? And Twitch does an okay job at times, questionable, right? But um, at moments, I think they do a pretty well job overall. But they are the ones that the 14 or 13 year old Fortnite players going to watch and try to act like, like, right? We talk about role models in the space too. And those are the first ones they kind of actively try to watch because first they'll start watching YouTube videos and they'll go find someone that they actually enjoy listening to. And that's a really defining moment because most parents don't really know how to stop a kid from picking what they're watching on Twitch most of the time or unless they're really involved. Um, and, you know, at that point, you're really setting themselves up for what the, the next four five, six, seven years is going to be if they really like that entertainer. Right. So I think it's literally the forefront of what, how we hold people accountable within the space. We have some really good role models in it and not some that are not so great. Jason, I grew up playing The Legend of Zelda and Duck Hunt and Super Mario Brothers, and I thought that made me a gamer. Clearly, it does not. It made me someone who loved games, but maybe it did make me a gamer. But as I think about where we are today and the future of esports, and the, the possibility of esports. I think it's also something that the broader public needs to be more literate about. As we wrap our time together, what is one thing that you wish the general public knew about esports or about the enterprise overall? I think the most important thing uh, is that it is not to treat esports as some alien uh, thing. Right. At the end, and you know, people like to poo-poo things that they don't understand. Uh, you know, there were, you know, 
quite frankly, even if you go back to the history of collegiate athletics, uh, you know, football is not as old as people think. Hockey is not as old as people think, right? So I'm sure there are people back 100, uh, 120 years ago that were like, well, why should we do this? It's a, it's a, it's a movement away from what we're doing. So instead of, you know, instead of being resistant to it, I would say, what about this really speaks to the next generation? Think about that, right? And, you know, I grew up the same as you playing those games. I think it makes both of us gamers, right? And uh, at the end of the day, I never conceived myself having this position. This position actually, frankly, doesn't exist anywhere else, right? Which is why I'm here. Um, and it's a and it's career path, right? So if, if, it, if it has that kind of... Uh, you know, stickiness in, in society and people want to talk about it, uh, I would encourage people not to think of it just as a, as, as a you know, a, a curiosity, but really say it's part of entertainment, whether we understand it or not, uh, you know, just like, you know, 30 years ago, we had no idea or 20 years ago, we had no, no idea what YouTube was and now it dominates our lives. Uh, maybe just think of this as the next evolution of, of entertainment, right? It's a little bit more interactive. It's a little bit younger. Uh, and frankly, the younger people will get older and then things will change again. But think of it as just a part of a evolutionary stream of entertainment. And that's what I think that people should think about. Yeah, I'll add to that, too, because you said, you know, maybe not maybe not a gamer. No, you absolutely are, because, you know, I, I grew up playing a game called King's, King's Quest. That was basically a pixel point and click adventure game. That's how I started. Right. Like it, it always starts with the most odd game and then eventually you kind of just grow into you know you're a gamer so you're, everybody who plays any game tic-tac-toe whatever that's the thing too right like we talk about esports we're talking about a cultural move within games that's what this is that is the you know the last 30 40 years like first back to where pong started and you see this wildfire people that really can express themselves through video games that being said i will say that if, I, if there's one thing i wish people knew and realized within esports um is the amount of sacrifice you have to give or what you have to do to get to the top for the competitor side, right? This is maybe a little bit selfish of me because I'm a competitor, but it's like that the cliche saying it's only the tip of the iceberg. Um, I think some esports players to get where they're at, it's a more competitive field than I think than 95% of other sports at times. And they have to give up so much without even realizing it, right? Because at first it feels fun. It's great. It always is kind of fun. But man, the, the amount of things I missed had to tell friends I couldn't go there or, you know, couldn't make something because I had to be on with my team for 10 hours that day like that. No one really realizes that no one looks underneath the iceberg enough. And to all those gamers out there, like even younger to now, keep on gaming, keep on dreaming. Don't let anyone hold you back. I want to express that full heartedly. No one's ever going to believe you at first until you start showcasing how good you are at it. That only comes with time commitment. Yeah. And, and one, one, one last concluding thought is that at the end of the day, um, you know, people think about gaming and, you know, they think, oh, well, you know, it's what I did when I was a kid or uh, it's, it's what I, you know, or what I do on my iPhone. Uh, and all of that counts. And it's, it's actually the dominant form of entertainment in the world. That's the one thing that people don't seem to think about. Over $150 billion plus globally in terms of revenues, uh, four times bigger than the global film industry. Gaming is huge. Esports, the competitive gaming side is a small slice of that, uh, you know, at a billion plus, but it's going to grow and grow because, hey, if you're the dominant entertainment source for the world, people are going to want to see the best in any in any endeavor. So it's it's, uh, you know, there's a long runway yet. So people might as well understand what it is.
You both have inspired me to pull out my old game console and get back into it. Jason Chung is assistant professor and executive director of eSport business programs at the University of New Haven. And Corey Parks is director of eSports and head coach of the University of New Haven eSports team. He's also a former pro eSports player. Jason and Corey, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. To learn more about the University of New Haven's eSports programs and find resources on eSports, you can visit our website at ctpublic.org disrupted. After the break, we'll hear about how the gaming industry contributes to the climate crisis and what gamers can do to lessen their impact. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This is Disrupted. For the first time, the gaming industry has come together to explore how they can encourage players to protect nature and biodiversity through actions in the games themselves. By harnessing the power of video games, we can preserve nature and biodiversity and empower communities to act. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. That was a promotional video from the UN-backed organization, Playing for the Planet. Their work focuses on educating gamers about their carbon footprint. But climate experts say the real change that needs to happen is on the corporate level. Every year, U.S. gaming produces the equivalent CO2 emissions of 5 million cars. Gary Cook is the Global Climate Campaigns Director for the climate change advocacy group Stand.Earth. He's here to talk more about what the gaming industry is doing to fight climate change and how gamers can really make an impact. Gary, welcome to Disrupted. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, during the pandemic, a lot of people have been trying to find ways to occupy their time or to have a break from the monotony of the day to day. And we've seen overall that video games have become one of the key ways that people have sought to have that kind of engagement. But what some people may not be aware of is the carbon footprint of gaming and the impact that it is having on our environment. What are some of the ways that you are seeing companies and gaming have an impact on our natural world? Yeah, I, I think some people might be surprised that gaming has a significant environmental impact. It uses a lot of energy, especially as we get into games that are uh, more focused online, very graphic intensive, very you know, interactive, very um, many of those very beautiful games that can take a lot of energy. So it becomes very important where the energy is coming from. Uh, if we're driving demand for energy that's contributing to climate change, that's a problem and a problem that the gaming industry should take steps to try to make sure they're focused on less energy and also powered with renewable energy. It seems that every few years, some new gaming console comes out that becomes the new hot ticket that people are willing to stand in line for hours for or just have to have. But I always wonder what becomes of the consoles that are being replaced? You know, do people continue to use them? Are they just being thrown away? And what the impact of that is on the kinds of concerns that you have? Can you speak to that, that sort of the nature of gaming consoles themselves? 
Yes, I, I think you know if you're a gamer over the years, you'll be collecting a, a lot of different devices in your closet and your drawers. That's also an important piece of the environmental footprint of gaming because if you know console designers and you know the people who are making the the games that run on these consoles are are really focused on how can they make sure we get another unit sale three years from now rather than hey let's let our customers let's figure out how to let them upgrade their their device let them let that investment their own investment the investment of the planet continue to live and we'll you know allow them to not start over from scratch that's a big problem because that's a lot of what the system we have now is it's very linear it's make it use it throw it out and start over from the beginning rather than thinking about okay hey we could actually design these things in a way that hey we could uh sell you a, a way to upgrade that and it's totally possible though and other you know some game designers are doing better than others and allowing users to repair their devices that's really important there's also decisions from a game manufacturer like where is that manufacturing happening and what's what energy is behind that uh, a lot of times it's it's made uh, in parts of the world that are very heavily reliant on coal still. And that's clearly one way they could make decisions that would uh, make it less. So it's about where it's made. And it's also make that investment last longer because it's, it's, it's not just your money, it's the planet's investment as well. I'm hearing, Gary, a, a connection between the ethical impact of gaming or the production of, of gaming, as well as the environmental impact. I don't think it's possible to separate the two, but the ethical question comes up in a variety of ways. And I think often for the public, they think of the ethics of it in terms of how much these consoles cost, right? Everyone wanted the PlayStation 5 last year, and people thought about the cost of that, or you know, if it goes on to a resale market, how that increases. But as you're saying, it's also the cost of the production and then who bears the disparate impact of that cost. How do we sort of change the conversation so that as people are engaging in this, as consumers, we're also thinking about the cost of this sort of entertainment and pleasure for us? Yeah, well, I do think you know, consumers are going to be the real catalyst for change here because I think you see people who are, you know, they read the news just this week, you know, UN saying we are on a path to runaway climate change and we're not we're not reducing fossil fuels fast enough. Uh, people are concerned about, you know, the impact of their decisions on people in other parts of the world. And I think you're just seeing the game industry begin to wake up to the fact that they have a responsibility. Companies are starting to you know, indicate they want to do better. They're definitely not moving at the speed and scale they need to. They're growing very quickly. We saw you know, gaming explode during the pandemic, and we need a much bigger intervention. I, I think that intervention needs to come in part from their customers who want to say, hey, we like your product, but we don't want to be contributing to climate change. We don't want to be causing uh, pollution is a part of our buying the latest Xbox platform. So that intervention can come from consumers and from consumer demand. Do you think that there needs to be more of an intervention or more regulation from government? Or do you think that takes away from the sort of shared ownership of our environment and what we all collectively can do to address that? No, I, I think we definitely need intervention from government, and you've had this already. I think you need we need to see accelerate in terms of setting energy performance standards for consoles. You see that happen in California, where the gaming is 
already like it's like five percent of residential electricity demand it's not kind of up there with uh electric dryers and other things that we otherwise think as being really big sources of household energy demand electricity demand and that's just from the, the console side that's not even counting when you flare in the, the move to cloud gaming which typically increases the amount of energy and in investment you know two to three times versus if we're you're just running it sort of from your own platform Let's talk about that then. First of all, I'm still stuck on the idea of the the level of energy consumption for California related to gaming. And I'm thinking about when we get into these periods, especially in the summer, where people say, you know, don't run your washer and dryer during the day or hold off on the dishwasher and do it by hand in order to conserve energy. I never hear those same demands when it comes to gaming. But a lot of people, Gary, thought that cloud gaming would be better because the the barrier to entry in that space would be lower, that it would allow more people to participate. But it sounds like what you're saying is that cloud gaming can actually introduce even more demands or even more challenges when it comes to this environmental impact. Talk to us more about how cloud, cloud gaming functions in this space. So cloud gaming, you know, you're, you're basically taking what had previously been you know, driven from your console and taking a significant port or adding an additional layer of computing graphic and putting it in the cloud. And so that's being, you know, those energy spent in the data centers that deliver that. It's not happening on your Xbox now. It's all happening in the cloud. And it's also the energy spent getting that, that those bits and all the images between the data center and your house. So it's, you know, effectively, while your energy bill might be a little bit less if you're running cloud gaming because your your own console wasn't working as hard as it's happening in the data center. You know, if you were able to look behind the wall, you'd have the equivalent of like another refrigerator to electricity demand happening to deliver that game to you. It underscores the importance of trajectory of the sector. And also like, it's really important for those who are, are building cloud platforms to make sure they're they're doing it with energy sources that are not contributing to climate change. So focused on making sure that it's about building the infrastructure to power with renewable energy. It's also about designing games in a way that use less energy. I mean, you and I think we also need to have some uh, rationalization about how important is it to go to like a 4K gaming platform, which is much more energy intensive simply because of its size. The bigger you get graphically or data-wise, it uses more energy. So if you have a 4K gaming platform that uses 15 gigabytes an hour, that's twice that of a Netflix movie. So it's, um, which is already, you know, has its own foot, footprint. So just because we can doesn't mean we should. And I think it, you're, it's an excellent point you bring up in California, we're getting these alerts all the time, certain parts of the year. It's like, we need to dial back our energy use. Gaming is never part of the mix, but it's certainly driving demand. I'm fascinated by all of the dimensions of this, that we think about the energy use, we think about what it means to sort of displace those provisions. But one of the other things, Gary, that I think most people don't realize is the role of water and the usage of water to cool some of these centers and how that also can deplete precious, valuable energy sources that can have a lasting effect. How does water usage play into what's happening here? Water usage comes in, in mainly in the data center, uh, where you're having big like Walmart-sized boxes of basically Walmart-sized building full of 
small, 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 small boxes of computers that uses a lot of energy. It generates a lot of heat and you have to keep those, that equipment cool. And so that often, it depends on how you build the data center. A lot of that can be very water intensive. And if you put that data center somewhere in the West, particularly right now, where we're all very water scarce, that can have a significant impact on water demand. So choosing you know, part of a part of what the responsibility of you know the Googles of the world and others who are building this this infrastructure is make sure you're building data centers in places that aren't water scarce and also designing your data centers in a way that are much less water demanding. And it's possible to do that. You see uh, more and more companies focusing on that, but a lot of them aren't. And that as they're they're coming into town and building data centers and before the community knows it, they've sewn up a lot of water rights that was there was no discussion whether we wanted to you know, give away a big chunk of water rights to a, a large internet company. And does that make sense in terms of the water needs of the community? The challenge related to that in terms of the water needs of the community, the sense of community awareness and engagement, because as you said, often these decisions are made and by the time they become public, it's a done deal. And then the community is left to shoulder the impact of that. But it also raises this point that gaming is such a competitive industry, not in terms of the, the, the players, but the sort of the business of it. It is so competitive. It is changing so much and so often that it raises the question of whether the companies have the time, the, the motivation or the time to consider these ethical dimensions because they're just trying to keep pace with their competitor and push out to the fastest game or the you know the greatest graphics to do that. Do you feel like these ethical considerations are there or do you think it is the nature of the industry that it is really about the bottom line which is often money? Look, I mean the the dynamic you describe is true for capitalism broadly speaking. It's about, you know, trying to make sure what you're reporting to your investors, what the next quarter, it's not about the long-term impact of your product. But that's changing too in investor community. Like there are people who are moving their money. Uh, so you see a lot of the motivation for how companies are, you know, taking on climate change and other environmental threats because their investors are sort of say, we're not going to invest in things that are driving climate change. So that becomes an important audience. I think the the challenge for the gaming industry is like the they are in a race and they're trying to you know get out the next product and you don't have enough leadership and they're not being demanding enough if you look at things like the the plan for change initiative that was you know set up by the UN it, it's a complete disconnect from what the rest of the UN is saying like the UN UN intergovernmental panel on climate change saying we are in a crisis we have to move very quickly the plan for change thing is, is you know it's very soft very slow and not ambitious for the gaming industry. And we need to see companies step up and say, we want to be renewably powered. We want to, we're going to take responsibility for reporting what our pollution is, and we're going to show you how we're going to make it go down. Cause that's what real leadership would look like and, and not find things like offsets or things that might make them feel good, but don't actually change, have any impact. We're in this sort of dual space where gaming is becoming increasingly popular or is very popular with younger people. And at the same time, younger people are often more attuned to the environmental impact of their choices. They are often more concerned with how their individual choices can affect our, our world, not just today, but in the years and, and decades to come. 
But for gamers, particularly younger gamers who say, look, I enjoy this, but I don't want my enjoyment to come at the expense of the environment. What's the advice that you give, Gary, to people who want to be more ethical and more considerate in their gaming practices? Uh, I think it starts becoming more demanding to ask questions of their, the companies they're, they're gaming on. I've seen, we've seen it time and time again. These companies will respond to demands of their customers. You know, 10 years ago, I was working for Greenpeace at the time. We started a campaign challenging Facebook to unfriend coal because people didn't want their status updates, their photos, everything to be driving demand for dirty energy. And Facebook heard from their customers and they responded. And we've seen that happen many other times. So I think being demanding and rewarding those companies who are actually taking action, companies care. They're, they're spending a lot of money to attract their customers. They want to keep them. They're now listening to their investors. So I think uh, investors will be paying attention if companies are are not uh, taking action because they see the risk both from climate change and from losing market share because customers are, are leaving to go game on other platforms. Gary Cook is the Global Climate Campaigns Director for the climate change advocacy organization Stand.Earth. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. Our interns are Kelly Langevin and Macy Carvalho. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Thanks for listening. <laughs>